Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner. Now, in this episode, we're going to have a look at abandoning the yacht. Now, this is something that we never really want to get into. This is something which strikes fear into most people's hearts. It's something, though, that's been at the very forefront of my mind recently because I've been challenging myself with cold water. We talked about this a few episodes ago. Uh, we discussed survival at sea and cold water and the physiological effects of going into cold water. And at that time, I shared with you that uh, I felt this was somewhere I was very weak on, that um, I have been generally avoiding cold situations for a long time. There was definitely a period for about 10 years there from, I don't know, like 2005 through to about 2015, where I was living in tropical countries. I didn't even have a winter for that for that period of time, like would sometimes get a bit cold going from the airport to my parents' house when I used to go back to visit them. But uh, since I came to Canada, <laughs> all that changed. It's uh, It can be pretty darn cold here, as you might imagine. I live in eastern Canada, uh, in Nova Scotia. And when it gets into the winter time, which it, it is now, it's January, normally we'd be looking at uh, pretty heavy snowfall. Um, judging that by what I experienced when I was young living in, in the UK. You know, in the UK... Growing up in the 80s, 90s, and I, I have to say that because I know it used to be colder and there used to be more snow, uh, but growing up in the 80s and 90s, getting two or three inches of snow was kind of like a big deal, and I know that things haven't changed too much in the UK because I listen to Radio 2 all the time, and of course when we get into the winter periods, an inch of snow or a bit of ice completely stops everything. So I had slowly moved away from uh, the cold conditions. I, at 45 years old, I'm not someone who's going out and uh, having to be involved in really cold uh, situations for my work. Being on the boat, I wouldn't really say that's very cold. You can get yourself cold, but it's not like it's a, an ice-filled environment. And, uh, and then living in the tropics for years and years, you know, when have you even got the opportunity? So over a period of time, I started to realize, hey, I actually haven't been in cold water for many years now. And then when I start thinking about going sailing around the world at the end of this year, it's very clear that, you know, being cold, being in cold water is something I'm going to have to live with on the boat. And then God help us, if anything happened and you went into the water, um, the worry is the fact that, yeah, you may drown, the boat may sail away from you, all those kind of things. But I'd be in problems in the first minute because of the physiological reaction my body would go through just want to hit the cold water. So what have I been doing about all this? That's the problem. I've identified the problem. Now, what's the solution? Well, the solution I realized was getting cold water. So uh, we went down on New Year's Day, went down to the uh, sea right here at the house. And with family members, we did a polar dip. Um, I actually went back in a second time, I think because I was so surprised that it wasn't that awful. Have you ever heard the phrase, uh, anticipation of death is worse than death itself? I'm sure it's from some movie somewhere. But uh, it, it bears true. You start to get into a situation where you think that something's going to be really, really awful. And then when you actually do it, it's not that bad at all. Like taxes, like, <laughs> like organizing your receipts, like doing whatever that thing is that you absolutely hate doing. Once you get involved in it, it's not that bad. It's this, if you listen to um, Stephen Pressfield, uh, the guy who does a lot of stuff about motivation, he has that fantastic book called uh, the War of Arts, which is definitely worth a read. Um, Stephen Pressfield calls it resistance, and it's just this force which is forever acting against you to try and stop you from attaining what you might be able to attain if you actually 
were held to the grindstone. So for myself, I realized that I'd started to build up quite a bit of resistance to cold water. And then when I went down and actually got in the water, although it was fleeting, as you might imagine, I realized this isn't that bad. So since then, I would like to report that I've been going down and doing uh, cold dips every day. I definitely have not, but I have been doing cold showers. And when you live in Nova Scotia and the groundwater is probably three, four degrees Celsius, I should get a number on that actually. So I can, uh, I can wow you with exactly how cold the water is or undo all of my good work by realizing it's at like 10 Celsius. But um, either way, I've certainly been challenging myself and then realizing, hey, this is not that hard to get past. And because I've been doing that, realizing I'm wearing less warm clothes in the everyday environment. I'm not cranking up the central heating in the house so far. Um, I'm, I'm finding that when I go into the lounge in the evening and the fires are on, I'm like, man, this is way too hot for me. So uh, I guess I've been <laughs> found a new way of saving money. Uh, I remember my sister, when she had uh, two teenage boys in the house, she had a laminated picture of a woolly jumper, a sweater, next to the thermostat for the central heating. And she had a little uh, annotation beneath it pointing at the, the jumper picture saying, put this on before you put this on and an arrow going across to the central heating to try and remind her boys that, you know, you can layer up a little bit and it doesn't look too crazy in your own house. So the idea with the cold water stuff is definitely to start to um, share some footage of that. I've been working slowly with the stuff on YouTube, um, primarily actually because we've got a lot of really good footage that uh, is going to be coming to YouTube very, very soon. We did a trip from Iceland to Newfoundland recently. Uh, well, recently, it was, you know, September of last year, but relatively recently. And that footage is in the can. It's been documented and organized by my friend Tom so that uh, it's something we can pull down the, uh, the story nice and quickly and make the videos out of. And I've just been working my through, way through the, the mess of video footage, which uh, preceded Tom joining the boat, which is me with almost no SD cards, no storage, trying to capture whatever I can through whatever means I can on the way to Iceland. So we've almost worked our way through that. We're gonna get onto the good stuff, which uh, happened in Iceland. We've got the drone footage. We've got some awesome interviews and things that Tom did with the crew we had. Like it's nice, but I'm finding that there might be uh, an opportunity to intersperse that with other things, particularly as we go into February of 2023, YouTube Shorts is gonna be something that's becoming more and more prevalent, you'll find, because they are opening up for YouTube creators to actually earn income from the shorts. So you'll probably see a lot of your favorite creators jumping onto shorts a lot more often. And it's an interesting time in social media because you can take the content which goes on YouTube shorts and put it onto uh, TikTok, you can put it onto Instagram, you can put it onto Twitter, you can put it onto your feed, all those things um, all requiring the same one minute vertical capture kind of video. So I'm trying to think, well, what, what shall I do for YouTube shorts? And uh, one thing I do know, having done this for a while now, is that not very many people are interested in sailing. <laughs> like, I always say this on this podcast, but um, because we're in sailing, we look around at other sailors and think, God, everybody loves sailing. You know, I've got a, a library of nearly a thousand books here. They're all sailing books, like all the books in the world are about sailing. And then, of course, you realize there's hardly anybody <laughs> interested in sailing. But I think a lot of people know what it's like to go in cold water. So I'm going to be challenging myself, I guess, starting this week. I can't, <laughs> I'm having a problem like 
coordinating what's coming out of my mouth here with what's going in my eyes, which is as I look out the window here uh, at the surrounding environment here in Nova Scotia, it's, uh, it's freezing rain at the moment. So the concept of going down to the water and getting out of my warm clothes into freezing rain and then getting into the sea is not very appealing. But I think that there's something in there. I think it's something that people can see as a, a, a very obvious challenge, whether into sailing or not. And if you're into sailing, you, you, we need to have our eyes peeled wide open here that um, we have to be able to deal with quite chilly conditions. It's been fun for me um, continuing to read these uh, books, um, which I'm doing on the Mariner's Library podcast, which I also have. Check that out if you haven't already. We read about 20 minutes of a book uh, every day. Um, been doing pretty good with that. Uh, last week had two days I couldn't uh, couldn't upload. That was there was a problem here, but um, we're back on it. And uh, I've only been running that podcast now for about six months or something, and we've got like 120 episodes. So um, I might not be perfect, but it's it's certainly uh, a lot of content there. And we've already read seven books, all of which you probably haven't heard of. They're they're pretty much all of them published before 1950, and yet. And I guess this is the reason why I did it. And yet in those books, the the strength and clarity of those authors coming through in their words and the um, familiarity of the situations that they find themselves in and the way that, uh, you know, it sounds exactly like what I get up to when I'm going sailing. I was reading one just recently, which I just started called The Track of the Typhoon from 1922. And he's describing the, the, the launch of their boat and then the first trip on their boat. And he's describing the fact that they can't start the engine and the, the, the inside of the cabin soaking wet and there's oil on the floor and they don't know when the next meal's coming. And like, yeah, yeah, sailing, sailing hasn't changed. But uh, in those books, they are describing, you know, very difficult situations that they get into, things that have then precipitated them writing a book about it. And uh, you start to realize, you know, remember that things can go wrong and your ability to step up and, and react to those is not going to be in the same it's not going to have the same kind of like uh, effectiveness as your favorite marvel hero um, if you're super cold and your hands don't work properly and there's something that you really really need to do that's super important to save yourself or somebody else or the boat or whatever it is your hands aren't just going to start working because you want them to they have to already be at a point physiologically where they can uh, resist the constriction of the uh, or, or rather that the uh, the constriction of the capillaries is not initiated because your body's already used to the cold. These kind of things. A um, hundred years ago, people are talking about trying to do important jobs at the last minute with cold hands. You think, I have no exposure to cold whatsoever, and I'm just kind of hoping this is going to work out. So um, I'm going to have a look at putting that uh, content uh, on, onto the um onto YouTube soon and uh, we'll start talking about cold weather. I'd love to hear if you've got experience of cold weather. Have you ever been in a situation where you've ended up way colder than you thought and it's become a, a massive detriment to you in a, in a difficult circumstance? It's, uh, you know, you can get super hot and get um, uh, heat exhaustion, heat stroke, of course, you know where that goes. It's not so much of a thing in sailing because there's a lot of water and even if you can just get a bucket out of the ocean, pour it over yourself, you can normally cool down. Dehydration would be more the issue, but the cold can start to bite into you and can become a safety issue, can become a performance issue if you're trying to race, as I'm trying to do. Um, it can really start to affect your health. So that's going to be coming. But on the back of all of that and the Sea Survival book that we've been reading through by Keith Colwell, the RWA Sea Survival Handbook, the uh, Bombard story, which I read over on uh, the Mariner's Library 
and then just the utter cold here in the in Nova Scotia suddenly I've realized um, if it came to abandoning a yacht I would have to make extraordinarily careful that I was not exposed to cold water in an uncontrolled manner because it would limit my response to the situation so as I was moving around this pen drive that's here on my desk which I use for kind of moving bits and bobs between computers I realized that the pen drive itself is one that was given to me by the organizers of the Velux 5 Oceans race uh, 10 years ago when I went uh, solo around the world and it has a load of documents on it which uh, I'd completely forgotten about or never read at the time and one of them is labeled abandoning your yacht <laughs> so I, I was okay let's have a see let's see what's in this thing so I'm going to run quickly through it um and uh, give you a kind of overview but I think it's uh, important to read out first where this comes from this was given to me by the uh, the organizing team of a solo around the world yacht race and in the previous iteration of that race um, Alex Thompson and Mike Golding famous British solo sailors had uh, ended up in a situation where Alex's boat had a very serious issue with it um, we can we can get into that a little bit explain what happened uh, there and what happened to the boat but uh, Alex had to abandon his his boat and uh, so we've got some real details here from real sailors involved in difficult offshore abandonments and these are notes so these are not like this is what you should do to abandon your boat this is notes to professionals to remind them of some details they should tack on to knowledge they already have about abandoning the boat so the last three lines of this thing in italics read this information was compiled from sailors who have been in the situation of abandoning their yacht and others involved with the safety of life at sea, including Josh Hall and Alex Thompson. Uh, Josh Hall, also super famous British round-the-world sailor. So um, let me let me scroll up to the top of this, and we'll go through it uh, r rapidly to get an overview of it, and then we'll, we'll start to drill down in some of the details. Uh, they're bullet points. They're not in any particular order. It's just notes that came out of discussions, clearly. The first one says, ideally try to have some rest before the rescue boat arrives. Eat some energy bars, drink, and make sure to have a piss before you tog up. Sounds good. Number two, prepare the items you want in your life raft, e.g. the grab bag, sailing gear, bag of food, emergency water, flares, knives, EPIRBs, handheld VHF fully charged, uh, handheld iridium foam fully charged. The extra weight in the raft will help stabilize it. Extra food if your visit, visit in uh, uh, uh uh, speech marks there will last uh, many days will help weight the raft down so if you're going to be visiting that life raft for many days uh, get some extra weight in it next point prepare yourself with plenty of thermals underneath your survival suit and uh, foul weather gear on top if you want as long as they do not restrict your movement gloves and life jacket are very important drink plenty of water and be well hydrated eat energy food bars before you start the job so lots of emphasis in these first three on prepping before you even get into going into the life raft when the rescue boat is close and you have made visual and verbal contact, deploy your life raft. Solas is the best. So in the scenario that uh, Alex Thompson went through, Mike Golding turned up and was the rescue boat. There have been a number of these through the history of offshore racing. Um, easily here it could be um, a, another um, maritime you know, a unit of some description. It could be a tug, it could be a ship, it could be a coast guard cutter, it could be another yacht, it could be a a fisherman it could be anything but they're your rescue boat and um he says make visual and verbal contact deploy your life raft solas is the best now we went through life rafts just the other day uh here on the podcast looking at which were the the different um 
standards that life rafts are constructed to. There's the ISO, there's SOLAS, there's ORC, but underlined here, SOLAS is the best type of life raft. It says, uh, next point, haul raft round alongside to leeward or close to the transom. Next point, when rescue boat is very close, load your gear into the raft, test the handheld VHF, make sure your boat is stopped. Only board the raft when rescue boat is giving you his okay, clip yourself to the raft. Pass a line between yourself and the rescue boat if you can, if not, cut yourself free and drift so he can maneuver around you. Next point, have an open VHF communication at all times. If you have to drift off, attach the longest line between the raft and your boat. Have a knife ready to cut the line to the raft if required. Be careful not to cut yourself or the raft. If the life raft is adrift, the rescue boat may come alongside or come around you with a trailing line with horseshoe on the end or another device to enable you to pick up the line. Next point, try to tie the line around the raft or, uh, or what's this now? Uh, try to tie the line around the raft or to the raft, okay? Take care of your hands for the rope burns. The loads will be bigger than you may be ready for. Um, last two, if the operation does not succeed, keep trying and stay in your raft. And last point, the person rescuing should make all the calls as responsibilities are on his shoulders. This will be a very emotional time. Try to remain as positive as you can at all times. Each of you are trying your best. So I thought we'd dig into that a little bit. Um, <clears throat> we could go in and have a look at um, various things through time where people have gone into life rafts. I think there's lots to be learned from that. That's maybe for another day. But this document's here. It's rather unique and it's taken from um, professionals, talking to professionals, just making sure that a few of the dots are uh, firmly lined up before people go to sea sailing solo around the world in the Southern Ocean. So um, first bit here, ideally try to make some, uh, ideally try to have some rest before the rescue boat arrives, eat some energy bars, drink and make sure to have a piss before you tog up. You know, it's one of those things that if you're drinking and drinking and drinking, if you're in super wet weather and uh, hydration is not really an issue because you're almost absorbing it through your skin, then um, when you get into that once only suit, into that emergency uh, insulated uh, immersion suit, the, the heavy neoprene one that you'd use in this kind of situation, um, it is mega irritating if um, you get in there and then realize that you've got to go to the bathroom. You know, in a, in a perfect scenario, you're not in there for very long, right? Uh, your, your once only suit, uh, <laughs> well named, um, you only ever want to be using it once. Um, it, it's, uh, it's your place where you are going to then try and survive inside that little rubber skin until you are back in an environment where uh, normal clothing and uh, your, your normal uh, metabolism can keep you safe. So to get into that like life-saving skin and then have to pee in it is just going to like put you on a feeling like, okay, this is a bad start, right? Um, next thing, prepare the items you want in your life raft, e.g. the grab bag, sailing gear, bag of food, uh, emergency water, flares, knives, EPUBs, handheld VHF, fully charged, handheld iridium foam, fully charged. Having a plan for when you go into the life raft is super important. The, um, the grab bags that most people will use for going into the water, they're designed to have uh, the ability to float with the, the expected gear inside them. They've got kind of foam in the, in the sides of the bag. And uh, that's a real benefit for two reasons. Number one, it means that it's gonna be, uh, you've got a second chance if you accidentally drop it in the water. Um, it's unlikely that if it goes into the water that you're gonna be able to maneuver your boat or your boat life raft combination or the life raft, you're not gonna be able to maneuver back to the 
uh, bag when it's gone in the water. But if you try and throw it in the life raft and it bounces out, you've got 10 seconds extra to maybe like get in there with a the boat hook or something. Um, those bags, because they're so um, completely surrounded by foam in the construction, they're very, very unlikely to damage the sides of the life raft, which has got to be an absolutely essential uh, consideration. Getting a kit bag, particularly a sailor's kit bag, and throwing it into a life raft, you think about the action it's going to be exposed to in there. If it's at all rough, if there's anything hard inside that, it's going to start working its way through the side of the bag. And obviously in this kind of situation, you might have ended up chucking all sorts of things in a bag. And then it would be like um, going through security at the airport where you realize, again, you've left your uh, Leatherman or your Gerber in your hand luggage. And again, they're going to take it from you. I think um, I must be up to $1,000 worth of uh, multi-tools that have been uh, removed from my hand luggage by various security teams in various airports around the world. But what happens is as you're getting a little bit crazy and just stuffing everything in there that you might, you know, might want to take with you, might want to take with you, um, you can end up with sharp things in waterproof bags that then poke their way through the side of it when the inside of the life raft starts to manipulate the bag. So the grab bags have this um, padding in them. If you're going to fit out bags to go into the life raft that you're going to take with you, extra things, put something else in there with them. You could um, stuff a sleeping bag down into the bottom of the bag and then fill the inside of the sleep bag with all your stuff and then tuck the top of the sleeping bag into the waterproof bag and roll that down and seal it. And then there's a bit of padding. You could get some um, bits of foam, like uh, we use um, camping mats underneath some of the uh, the bunks there um, as an extra little piece of insulation because it gets really cold on those pipe cots if you're in cold conditions. So there may well be materials on board that can pad things out a little bit. It'd be a pity to uh, get a bag full of all the stuff that you really, really need and then throw it in the life raft and it splits itself open and uh, loses the stuff or, or damages the life raft. So making sure you've got the grab bag ready, making sure it's the right kind of grab bag. Um, this uh, a bag of food that they're talking about. For the sailors that this was being given to, and this was literally being given to competitors in a solo around the world yacht race, most of the food they've got is... Um, is uh, a freeze-dried and the good thing with freeze-dried food is that you can add water to it and even if uh, you don't heat it at all it's still going to rehydrate you just pour the water cold water into that bag you just have to leave it for a longer period of time so an hour with water in it it's going to be edible even there's no heating whatsoever if you're taking stuff off of a cruising boat there could be all sorts of stuff going in there there could be cans and there could be chunks of cheese and there could be I know, juice bottles and all the rest of it, think about what's going into that bag and kind of protecting it a little bit from the action. The action inside a life raft at sea in rough conditions is not awesome. It's like being in a waterbed where the waterbed's fighting back. The waterbed's trying to eject you from the waterbed, but uh, this waterbed's got like a kind of rubber four poster around it so you can't get out of it. So you're getting thrown around you know what it's like a bouncy castle that's what it's like a giant flooded bouncy castle in fact it's the same materials it's exactly what it is and the bouncy castle is being thrashed by giants that's uh, uh what i imagine it to be like in a in a very big sea when you read the accounts of people from the the fastnet from the sydney hobart um, the action surprised them and the action of the it's only in the sydney harbor hobart the action of the waves actually tore the life raft in pieces until they just literally had the inflated tubes to to save themselves with so uh, the gear that you put in there and, and making sure that gear is ready to go. That period of time before you get off the boat, that can be filled with planning. This could be something that's uh, laminated and put up on the wall, like the departing the boat plan. 
Um, certainly, I've my observation of uh, years of taking people out on the water is that, and I've said this many times before, if you're in the military, if you're in the first responders, if police officers, something like that, you've got a very good sense of when an emergency is starting and you probably have a pretty solid um, internal concept of how you're going to work through it. You get onto that kind of hypervigilant uh, mental state and you're, you're, you're able to give your best to the emergency. Oftentimes, people do not recognize when the emergency is starting. I, I remember reading the account of Tony Bullimore, who is the British sailor whose uh, keel snapped. Was that 96, I feel like saying? Yeah, I think it was 1996 that, um, what was his, was his boat called Exide Challenger? I'm guessing there. Exide, I know, are a battery manufacturer. I feel like it was called Exide Challenger, but whatever happened, the keel broke off. And, um, when it broke off, the boat very rapidly uh, lost stability and then turned uh, upside down. And I remember reading the book, and I, I was only a couple years after it happened, after Tony had written the book. So let's say it's within 10 years. I certainly was at the beginning of my sailing career at that point. And yet it struck me as really strange that his description of like what he did next after the, the boat had turned upside down was sit and uh, eat biscuits and uh, I think, did he have a cigarette or two? That's kind of understandable. But it, there was like a protracted period of time, or certainly that's how it was written in the book, where he's sitting in the upturned hull, looking through the windows in the what would have been the top of the, 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 the coach house roof, and now looking down into the Southern Ocean. And he can see the boom smashing against the, uh, the, the cabin roof, uh, the underside of the structure which is keeping him alive. And then lo and behold, within X amount of time, the boom smashes the windows and then the water starts to come into the cabin. And I always thought, wow, that's like the wrong time to be doing that kind of like sit and think thing. Um, although it is very understandable. It's the wrong action, but it's very understandable. And uh, I guess all the training that we end up trying to do on boats to mitigate these these uh, unforeseen, well, not unforeseen, these, uh, well, unforeseen incidents that, that result in understood consequences most of the time no one's really expecting it to happen and has most people who don't have that kind of background in their life they don't realize okay the emergency starting now tony bullimore sitting on the upturned roof of his boat uh eating biscuits watching this boom smashing the window to me that that screams get your immersion suit on get your gear ready and indeed unfortunately if i remember that story correctly he ends up losing a finger trying to get the life raft um, because once that water comes into the cabin, it goes from a uh, new scenario to life-threatening in very, very quick period of time, very quick period of time. So um, if he had perhaps worked through more of a plan and really gone into it in detail, he would have that to, to, to jump into. And whilst you can't necessarily train all of that stuff all the time, you can't train hard and fight easy, as the military would say, with something that's like that, what you can do is think it through as much as possible and then laminate it and put it on the wall. And then you only have to do one thing in an emergency, which is remember to look at that that checklist on the side. This kind of stuff is a lot easier perhaps for racers because you can have an interior to a boat which has got laminated things stuck all over the inside of it and, and notes to yourself and diagrams of how things work and all the rest of it. But, you know, are race boats exposed to more risk than than uh than than cruising boats i i don't know <clears throat> that'd be a difficult metric to work out on many 
occasions the people that are in the race boats have more experience of the boats and more experience of those kind of situations and maybe more actual just down and out uh, or down <laughs> down and out skills <laughs> the, the more skills that they can double down on and um can use in an emergency um but there's uh, uh obviously they are putting themselves in a situation where there's a lot more risk so I'm not, I'm not sure there which is safer to cruise or to race, but um, certainly if you're in the mindset of uh, having these things planned out beforehand, it doesn't matter what you're doing, you'll have some kind of gear to kick into. So going back to the thing here, um, it says uh, prepare the items you want in your life raft. The items that you want in your life raft maybe should be changed for items that you have already planned that need to go into life raft and all of the details of how they're going to be clustered together and what's clipped to what and you know where are the spare batteries and all the rest of that stuff interesting here that they uh, remind us that the handheld vhf needs to be fully charged um it's something that this season just done i realized we didn't have a really solid uh solution for for charging the vhfs and the vhfs were charged and in storage but they weren't constantly on charge. And then a couple times I had to go to uh, the, the VHF, uh, the handheld VHF, and I found that they were either low or out of power. So that's something we're working on with the Maxi to obviously make sure that stuff is just, that's done. We don't have to worry about that. They're charged. If, as long as they're in their, their sockets on the side, they're charged. But details like that, yeah, you have the handheld VHF, awesome. This document's a little bit older, so we can add to that a handheld VHF with the GMDSS button that we talked about when we last discussed safety at sea, and it needs to be fully charged. And if you have that, your chances of survival go up, right? So making sure that that's like that would be a good idea. Making sure that there's not a load of sharp things that you've decided last minute to chuck into your, you think like, oh, maybe I'll take the... I know it would take my marlin spike with me because I might be able to make it into a spear to catch a fish if I'm in the life raft for a long time and then it's in your bag and then it works its way through the bag and punctures the side of the raft. It's like <laughs> you're going to feel a certain way about that as your life raft's uh, deflating. So having a good plan for what stuff you want to take into the boat in the event of um, having to get off the boat, that you have the right bag, you have the right equipment, you've got a list of things which... Uh, you've already thought beforehand you're going to need and then as you get into the life raft you have you know at least you can just focus on the job of being in the life raft and uh, whatever's the next part of your rescue and not uh, you know god god help us you don't want to be like jumping the life raft and realize you've like forgotten something essential that's just beyond crazy so get everything uh, ready make sure everything's fully charged uh, it says here the extra weight in the raft will help stabilize it extra food if your visit will be lasting many days, will help weight the raft down. Um, <clears throat> kind of, yes, kind of, no. Again, for the races that this was pointing at, um, they were actually doing a race where, as we said, they only have freeze-dried food. The weight of that freeze-dried food would be quite low, but you could take your water jugs with you and it would be super, super uh, useful that you've got food. You just need to have a little bit of water. You could collect water from from dew and from condensation if you uh if you had to in, in some climates but that extra food as freeze-dried food is not going to weigh very much so be cautious if you're looking to stabilize the life raft with the weight of the food you're taking with you um, because it's uh it depends what you're taking with you of course right <laughs> just chucking all the bread and crackers in there it's not going to have any effect but the the point is well made that the um the life rafts that you're likely to have if you're sailing shorthanded if you're sailing um, with just a small crew those life rafts are probably at a minimum six person rafts 
Uh, I think like on the Maxi, I was sailing around last autumn, that's got two 12-man life rafts. Like if I'm getting in one of those on my own, oof, that's going to be horrible. Again, that that idea that it's kind of like the, the waterbed that fights back, it's uh, an angry, bouncy castle, that's going to be pretty dreadful being in there. So having other items that are in there with me could be good. I wouldn't want to be in a situation where I was relying on them and I would be... Uh, I'd be kicking myself if I had put myself in a situation where I'm then getting battered by bags of cans and <laughs> glass bottles and things, which I've decided to get in there um, whilst I'm getting battered by the ocean as well. Uh, prepare yourself with plenty of thermals, says the next one. Uh, well, I'll read it properly. It says, prepare yourself with plenty of thermals underneath uh, your survival suit and foul weather gear on top if you want, as long as they do not restrict your movement. The insulating abandonment suits which um, we have to carry for this kind of racing and it's good to have a couple of on your boat anyway um, they can be got pretty cheaply from the uh, the guys who do the servicing for the offshore maritime uh, industry whether it be oil rigs or gas rigs or ships or whatever they have all these big insulated neoprene suits oftentimes when they're getting towards the end of their life you can get hold of them pretty cheaply from the service centers they are though very very difficult to manipulate anything carefully the gloves on them are a, a strange mix where you've got your first finger and your and your thumb available for more dexterous works like releasing lifeboat slings and that kind of stuff but there's nothing that you can do that's detailed you can't you can have be hard push to like press the buttons on an iridium phone or do up a, a ziplock bag or whatever so be aware of what you're going to be wearing if you've got some sense of how you react to cold water you can maybe sort of dress appropriately right there's there's going to be a bit where you're needing to be more dexterous and needing to be more agile particularly if you need to like leave the vessel in a in a in a, in a tricky situation where it's on its side or upside down um having the neoprene suit on already could be a problem once you're at the surface and you're just it, you in the water the neoprene suits the the best possible when you're back in the life raft again there's a lot of insulation in there but again you might find it difficult to um to do a lot of jobs so with a little bit of planning and a little bit of forethought and with um having already taken time to understand your reaction to cold water what gear you're going to put on might be a known factor there's no doubt that if anybody is exposed to cold conditions for a long period of time, their survival uh, outcome is pr pretty much directly related and, and I think a directly proportional relationship to how much insulation they can create to stop their skin from cooling. As we've learned, you lose lose heat so much faster through your skin. Is it like 25 times faster when you're wet as opposed to uh, when you're in dry conditions? So trying to get yourself dry, trying to keep or trying to keep yourself dry, trying to get yourself insulated, absolutely essential. But there may be a step at the first part of this where having all of that suit on um, may, may be a problem. Um, the gloves may need to be off. You may choose to put the hood down. You may, you know, got a, got a risk of flooding the suit and stuff, but you've got to know your decision and what you're going to do. Thermals underneath is pretty much never going to be a problem um, unless you're trying to abandon into the tropics, in which case you might end up with uh, heat exhaustion. But thermals underneath, a couple of layers of those that are holding water close by the skin, pretty essential. But this thing of restricting your movement when I think of some of the the incidences that I've had on boats over the years, I say I've, I've been very lucky, Touchwood, that um, haven't had anything serious happen. Um, I try and apply as much professional forethought as I can to situations. Um, you have to take what you're given sometimes at sea. But 
One of the ones I think of is uh, a chap who was getting ready to go and watch, and he was very worried about uh, just how cold it was on deck. We're in the middle of the Atlantic in like November, and uh, he ended up collapsing and um, kind of going into uh, almost like a seizure, um, uh, lots of foam coming out of his mouth. Like um, I was right there. As soon as he collapsed, I was able to clear his mouth, get him on the side, get him into a recovery position. But he got into that situation. He started completely and utterly overheat himself. He'd put on fleeces and thermals and then he had a big uh, floater suit that he put on top of that and then a woolly hat and a gloves and a, all the rest of it his ability to engage in the work that was required of him on watch would have been massively limited by the restrictions imposed by his clothing by the restrictions imposed on his um his ability to exercise and uh, and, re and respire uh, during his watch because he was in so much gear going into the water we've got to find a balance between putting on the absolute warmest thing you can possibly put on which will keep you safe when you're completely immobile in the raft later and the transition period of getting off the boat and into the raft and any restriction that you may experience at that point the the cold ocean is a petrifying environment to me but even if i can step objectively to one side uh, and just look at the situation if I did have a resistance to temperatures down to five celsius then I would be able to go on deck in my normal foul weather gear and do everything I needed to do to get into the life raft and just carry the insulated suit with me and attempt to put that on in the life raft later they're not that hard the, the zip closures are very easy to get into it's a massively oversized thing so you're in there like a you know like a couple of beans in a bag there's it's it there's lots of space to get into it you don't necessarily have to have it on as you depart unless you know you're going into the water in the southern ocean and it's going to be you and the water and nothing else so uh, making sure that you're not restricted by the gear you start to put on making sure that the uh, you're warm enough very very important and uh, as always gloves and uh, and something for your head uh, the, the hands are going to be so important for doing whatever jump comes next even if it's just holding on to a rope that's thrown to you and that the head if that starts to cool down so uh, too much we lose so much heat through our, our heads that um it'll just be a car crash if you if your head gets cold and your hand gets cold you won't be able to help yourself again here they talk about having plenty of water uh, well hydrated and eat energy food bars before you start the job i guess that also speaks to the fact that you want to be making good decisions and if you've uh, been in a, a a really emergency situation you've been waiting waiting for someone to come and save you and now it's at the point which they're describing here which is transferring to another boat you want to make sure that in those last couple of hours of the person arriving and you about to get into a situation where you're, um, you know, off your boat in the Southern Ocean, it's easy to imagine that you've been focusing on a lot of other things and that you may have forgotten to do the basics, which is feed yourself. So, again, having all this stuff in some kind of laminated instructions to your you know you're gonna have very little bandwidth to do any novel or useful thinking during this emergency and you mustn't be doing new things in a new situation that's where stuff gets really messed up you want to be doing known actions with known outcomes in this novel emergency situation you've uh, gotten into and you, that means you can write a lot of them down beforehand uh, moving to the next one, it says, when the rescue boat is close and you have made visual and verbal contact, deploy your life raft, Solas is the best. So deploying your life raft at the right time. We all know that um, life rafts are things you should be stepping up into and that the boat itself is always a better option than the life raft. Almost 
almost without any exception that the boat is so much more visible to uh, would-be rescuers. The boat has got all of the tools on board. It's got all the food on board. It's got all the water on board. It, it maybe has the possibility that it can be fixed in some situations. And we'll, we'll come back around to that a little bit because we've Alex Thompson's mentioned in this, and I know that this document came from the 2006 Velux Five Oceans race. And the situation they're talking about is a very famous one where Alex's boat suffered a, a, a critical piece of damage and he had to get off it. And you know what, let's talk to that about that now because otherwise this stuff gets a bit dry. So Alex was um, south of Cape Town doing pretty good in the uh, Velux Five Oceans race and uh, the top of his uh, keel came off. Okay, so let's describe that. So an Open 60 is a boat which has a canting keel. The keel blade uh, descends 4.5 meters, like what's that, like 12 or 13 feet below the boat. And then it's got a couple of ton of lead or tungsten or something sporty on the bottom of it. And what the boat can do is operates hydraulic rams or in a couple of very rare circumstances a block and tackle system and they can engage with the top of the keel which is like the very short end of a teeter-totter the very short end of a seesaw and then the fulcrum point is a giant pin about the size of your largest coffee cup in your house <laughs> if it's anything like the one i'm looking at here like good four inches five inches across there's this hardened steel pin that runs right through the center of this uh, this part of the keel. And that's the only like solid connection between the, 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 the boat hull and the keel, this pin. There's about one meter or three foot of uh, keel above the pin. These hydraulic rams or this block and tackle system is engaging with the top of the keel. And then the rest of the keel is sticking out the bottom of the boat all the way down four and a half meters underwater with all that weight on it. And the function of that is that as the boat starts to lean over, when you start to beat and go upwind and you want to create extra uh, writing moments so that the boat stands up straight, the wind doesn't get spill, spilled off the top of the sails uh, to give her more upwind power, the keel can be lifted up towards the surface of the water when she's heeled over and that increases the lever arm so that the boat stands up more. Very um, modern system in terms of the history of sailing, probably only seen it for the last 25, 30 years. And um, they have got a bit of a reputation for breaking, but as it was explained to me by a number of yacht designers actually that are involved in this area, um, the designers themselves know how strong the components of the keel need to be. This is not a uh, an unknown element, but the skippers and whoever's leading the build of these race boats is very, very, very keen to get as much of the weight uh, of the construction of the boat into the very bottom of the boat, into the, the keel. Now, when I'm saying keel, I'm separating the underparts, un underwater section of the boat in this area into two components, the keel blade and the keel bulb. So I should just clarify that. But the, they want to get as much weight in the bulb as possible. And that means that they will attempt to try and get as much off the keel blade as possible, where there's a there's a kind of an upper limit to that, right? So if it stays within the bounds of what the designer and the engineers have calculated for that keel, then fine. But if something happens, like it gets struck by something or just there's some uh, mechanical failure within the keel or whatever it is, that it may well be that the keel then snaps off, okay? That's uh, something that we've seen quite a lot of. It makes you start to think, oh, these keels are like breaking off all the time, but they're on the very edge and sometimes they go over the edge. Well, Alex had a different kind of situation um, his keel rams on the top of the keel broke off. So now there's no way of stopping the keel from moving 
relative to the boat. So the keel plate is still down underwater, the keel bulb is underwater, and uh, it's just hanging down with gravity. But the hull of the boat is exposed to the movement of the surface of the water, and it is now free to move relative to that that piece of keel which comes up through it. The short end of the teeter-totter is now way out of control. It's got four ton or something on the other end of it, well, 4,000 pounds maybe on the other end of it, two ton on the other end of it, and uh, it's then gonna start going nutso inside the boat because there's nothing to stop it from moving around. The structure which is immediately around the keel pin and the top of the keel is called the keel box, and that area of the boat is sealed off from the outside so you can often look through the top of the keel box and see water rushing past or water being pressed pressed up into the keel box by certain hydraulic effects um, but if that keel box gets damaged the ocean is coming into the boat right and uh, that was the situation that alex was stuck with that now he wasn't moving the boat's just um rocking about in the southern ocean you can imagine what that's like the keel blades hanging straight down but with the relative motion between the hull and the keel blade inside the boat what Alex sees is the top of his keel thrashing from side to side ready to rip itself through the side of the, the boat and and sink the boat or certainly flood the boat um, uh, imminently so uh, Mike Golding comes to his rescue and uh, there was a bit of a snafu where Mike Golding's uh, rigging got uh, caught up in Alex Thompson's rigging and that led to the boat uh, later dismasting but um, by the time um, Mike had rescued Alex, essentially his race was over because uh, it's no longer a, a solo non-stop in, endeavor. They were sailing from um, Spain to Fremantle, Australia in that leg, if I remember correctly. And so at Cape Town, they're halfway through it to have another international solo sailor on board your boat. I don't know. I don't know what they do with that, actually. <clears throat> That'd be an interesting question to ask someone who's been involved in race organization. If if you have one sailor rescue somebody else and then they're both on the boat and that boat starts doing well as it crosses the Southern Ocean, how do you how do you penalize that? But as it was, it, it didn't happen. But the, the point to make here is that we came into this discussing when do you deploy the life raft? That was the thing that we read here, um, that you deploy it to Leeward and uh, the Solas, rife is, uh, Solas uh, life raft is the best. Um, you step up into life rafts. Alex uh, stepped down into the ocean on this occasion when he uh, went across to Mike Golding's boat. Um, that his boat was still floating, but there was an imminent risk of it uh, being ripped apart by its uh, this crazy keel action. And the, he he abandoned the boat, and and that's kind of the end of it. Interestingly, the boat did not sink, and we actually have quite a lot of information about what happened to the boats next because it was found. And before we get into that, I'd just like to remind you, if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. And there for $5 a month, you can help support the podcast and you get access to exclusive content only on Patreon. Um, lots of different things happening there. I've just started to add a unique set of readings, a different set of books than the ones that I'm reading on the Mariner's Library podcast. And those books, those readings, that knowledge exclusive for people supporting on Patreon. Okay, let's have a look now at uh, where this boat turned up because um, when Alex got off the boat in the Southern Ocean in 2006, about a thousand miles um, south of, um, of Cape Town, and uh, you know when he stepped off it, I'm pretty certain he never thought he'd see that again. But because of the construction of the boat, because it's designed for round-the-world yacht racing, it's got all these individual airtight compartments, and that the actual boat itself is made of... Um, 
scrims of carbon with foam between, at least a lot of the boat is, it means there's a huge amount of flotation. So the boat continued on its journey as Alex continued on with the rest of his life, never thinking, of course, that they might meet again. But uh, then this strange story popped up in 2016, February, and uh, the boat had turned up. It had turned up in Chile, which makes a lot of sense when you think it's in the Southern Ocean. There's nothing stopping the uh, currents and uh, flotsam and jetsam of the of the Southern Ocean uh, anywhere along its path until you get to the west coast of South America, to Chile. And that's where the boat had turned up. Um, uh, I've got the article here. It's up on the screen. It's from Yachting World, February 22nd, 2016. It says, Alex Thompson's Hugo Boss, abandoned in 2006 when the keel head broke, has been found 10,000 miles away after nine years drifting in the Southern Ocean. These photos of the shipwrecked hull of Alex Thompson's Hugo Boss were taken in February in Patagonia during a kayak expedition by Chilean adventurer Christian Donoso. So that's pretty wild. The, uh, the pictures are, are, are very cool. Um, basically, it looks like two-thirds of the boat survived. Um, you can easily find this stuff online if you look for Alex Thompson, Hugo Boss, and uh, Chile. Um, it's got some images of the boat at sea, which you know, looks like an open 60 from the late 1990s, early 2000s. Pretty simple design compared to what we've got going on today. But very, very clearly, massively branded by Hugo Boss. And then suddenly there's pictures of it, you know, 10 years later and two thirds of it is washed up and is lying amongst the uh, the dunes and the and the short grasses and bushes at the edge of what looks like the beach. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and uh, yeah, it looks like the like the the rear third of the boat broke off, uh, which is interesting. The mast is quite gone, um, but it's there. It floated there. So in a discussion which we're having today about uh, abandoning the boat, um, abandoning the boat should be done at a point where um, you have a definite option, which is better than what you're stood on. Now for Alex in this situation. The option was to get on board of um, uh, Mike Golding's boat. And uh, as I was looking at this um, article from Yachting World, which is by Elaine Bunting, excellent reporting from her, um, it connected me through to Mike Golding's uh, account of what happened that night. So I thought as we're discussing this now, we've got this document in front of us from the Velux Five Oceans uh, race organizers. Um, given to me actually by a guy called Dave Adams and uh, Alan Nabauer. That was the uh, the two guys that ran the race for us in, in 2000 and, uh, 2010. They were also there for the race in 2006. And uh, well, let's uh, let's jump in and have a read what comes from uh, Mike Golding's account of it. Um, there's a little bit in this, uh, but, you know, we're discussing abandoning a boat. I think having some of the best sailors in the world describe how they did it is probably pertinent to the discussion. So forgive me while I read from the internet for a second, but I think you'll see that it's uh, it's worth it. Let's have a quick see. Um, how far up am I gonna read from this? Yeah, okay, here we go. Golden, Golding and Thomas were driving along the forward face of an extensive, fast-moving Southern Ocean depression. Both were pushing hard to stay ahead of the system in foul conditions with winds up to 45 knots and huge, well-established seas. Alex Thompson's transfer from the critically damaged Hugo Boss was streamed live to Sky News from his yacht. It took place in highly confused seas in the eye of a storm. The result was that the sky was bright blue with fluffy clouds, which on low quality video equipment underplayed the real severity and danger of the situation by a multiple factor. In fact, 
Hugo Boss disappeared off Argus tracking only two hours later, while Ikova was logging a 72-knot gust. Their timing had been fortunate, but you make your own luck in this world. The seamanship Golding describes remains supreme. Okay, so pretty pretty epic stuff, right? Again, uh, Elaine, is this the same one? Yeah, this is uh, Elaine Bunting uh, uh, writing this again. Let's make sure she gets uh, the credit for this excellent stuff. But the next bit is from Mike Golding's diary or collected notes and diary and log from that period. This is his uh, words on this rescue of Alex Thompson. Two days ago, on the 23rd of November, the first sign of a change came with the 1020 position report. Over the previous 48 hours, Ikova and Hugo Boss were making some of the fastest speeds of the race so far with 24-hour runs of 450 miles. Wow. On Ikova, we were seeing regular speeds in excess of 30 knots and our averages were around 20 knots. This is the most stressful sailing humanly possible. The speed is electrifying and the Southern Ocean is the most fearful location. Here, the wind and waves have been uninterrupted by land for 15,000 miles and this makes it the best place for high-speed sailing, but also the most terrifying for the sheer hostile and uncontrolled power exerted by the elements. But for us, huge strides were being made on Bernard Stamm's lead and all indications were that within the next few days, the challenge for overall pole position would be firmly up for grabs. But on seeing this particular position data file, with Alex and Hugo Boss making only 8 knots to my 19, some intuition told me that things were about to change radically. I immediately called the race office and asked them to find out what was happening. Minutes later, they confirmed that there was indeed a problem on Hugo Boss, though Alex had not at that time requested any assistance. I told the race office that it was my intention to slow until such time as we could confirm that Alex was okay. I would not normally do this, but something here was not right, and at the speeds Ikova was doing, we were rapidly putting a big and difficult distance between each other. If I did need to turn around, the job of heading back was getting harder by the minute. Deep reef into the mainsail, slowing the boat measurably, but still averaging over 16 knots. Then I waited. Fifty minutes later, David Adams called me to tell me things had changed dramatically on Hugo Boss. The keelhead had snapped and the keel was swinging uncontrolled in the boat, which was now taking in water. It was therefore just a matter of time before the situation turned from a dangerous one into a potentially fatal one. Alex was asking for assistance and Ikova was the closest to render it. I put the phone down just as we screamed off a huge wave at 25 knots. This wouldn't do at all, so I set about rigging the boat with storm sails to turn round. Alex was 90 miles away and we had five hours before darkness set in. Any successful rescue was going to hinge around managing to rendezvous just as the low centre passed over his somewhat erratic position. We were blessed more by luck than judgment that, in the event, this was actually possible because conditions after turning back were properly horrendous. The next period remains perhaps the most extreme open 60 sailing I have ever done, with Ecova crashing through freezing waves at 9 knots on the reciprocal heading. She didn't enjoy this at all, and Fleet 77 SATCOM packed up immediately. Next, the engine got up its tricks again, and with the batteries now desperately needing a charge, 
I was once more buried in the engine bay, covered in diesel as the boat lurched and crashed back where we had just come from. This time I had to fix the problem in a fully reliable manner as the engine would be needed to manoeuvre to get Alex on board. I ditched all advice and rigged a jerry can filled with diesel as a gravity feed direct to the high pressure pump on the engine, skipping the fuel pump and secondary filter. The engine ran, and it now ran reliably, and at last I could concentrate on preparing the boat and myself for the job of safely collecting Alex. The wind moderated and headed me as I closed the distance, but the sea state did not. If anything, the waves got steeper. As the storm centre approached, it became harder and harder to make progress. We were still not quite going to make the rendezvous in daylight, but with accurate and regular information coming through from the race office, we moved ever closer. In the final few miles, Alex and I actually conferred over sat phone and radio to make last-minute navigational adjustments. Finally, out of the blackest night imaginable, a flare shot into the air, and in the glow cast down from the scudding low cloud, I could just see Hugo Boss's mast, and was able to pick up his masthead strobe light and finally his deck-level navigation lights. A transfer was absolutely too dangerous during the night, because if I lost sight of him, even for a moment, he would be gone. I dropped the sail and tried to match his drifting course and speed. Alex slept. I fretted and tinkered with my engine, tested the controls again, gathered my rescue kit, coiling down throw lines into buckets, and in the end, playing solitaire on the PC. I was nervous about the transfer. At some point it was clear that Alex might well end up in the water, and in 5 degrees Celsius temperatures there would be no time for a screw-up. Sunrise was at 2.59 GMT, so I called and woke Alex. We both ate some food and generally got our acts together before he rigged in his survival suit and set himself up for me to come close. The plan was that he would inflate his life raft on the leeward side, throw some supplies in and then jump in. He would then send a line across to me with his rocket line thrower before casting himself adrift from Hugo Boss. A good basic plan which meant he would never be unattached. I manoeuvred a cover under engine. The controls were very stiff, being unused for three weeks, but otherwise all seemed to be okay. I experimented to see if I could drive the bow through the wind and waves. Nope, she would not go up. I gunned the engine and bang, the shear pin between the engine and the drive leg failed. Now I had a reliable engine, but with no ability to drive the propeller. I called Alex and just stopped him from jumping into the raft. Then I did possibly the quickest shear pin change in history. And then we began again. The first part went okay. Alex was in the raft, and in fact he let a painter out so that he was 50 feet behind his boat. I positioned myself to leeward of both the raft and Hugo Boss. Bringing the boat together would be a full-on disaster. He aimed the rocket thrower. I ducked, but nothing. The rocket line did not work. I grabbed my first pre-coiled down line and ran to the rail and did possibly the worst line throw imaginable. I turned and went around again. This time it looked better. I got a line to him, but the throttle gear control now would not work and I could not kill my speed or control the gearbox ahead or astern. He dropped the line and I pulled some sail out to make another pass. By now, he had dropped his line to Hugo Boss. He could see the danger we would be in if the boats came together and realised that I needed some room to manoeuvre around him without getting any lines in the prop. Hugo Boss slowly headed away to the south, looking low in the water. A deeply sad sight. I unfurled some headsail, and we had another go. This time I got a line on him and secured the raft, but in the process, 
The bows blew down and Ekova began to sail too fast. A big wave started us on a surf. Alex clung on desperately, injuring his hand in the process. He yelled in pain and fright as the raft was being towed at five or six knots with the rope twisted around his hand. Looking for all the world like a donut skier, Alex moved his weight to the back of the raft, but it still flooded with water. We dropped the line and I went around again. Perhaps the most bizarre image which will stay with me was the sight of Alex alone in his raft, Hugo Boss now a quarter mile away, and in the steep seas, the world's largest albatross sitting in the water, just feet from Alex. To me, it began to look like a vulture moving in for the kill. This was just not happening. This time, I took off most of the sail and used the engine, which was now stuck permanently in ahead, thus having to leap below to adjust the throttle setting under the sink, and in the very last moment, killing the engine using the kill switch in the nav station. But this time, the approach was near perfection. The raft arrived on my bows and bounced down the hull. I virtually passed Alex the line, which he made fast. I killed the engine and winched him back into the leeward side. We hugged as I welcomed him aboard and I apologised for my shabby pickup. I probably would have failed my yacht master on that one, I said, but we had him. And oh, what a fantastic feeling. Oh my goodness me, you couldn't ask for more, could you, from a, uh, a description of what it is to pick somebody up in the Southern Ocean. So I guess this now allows us to understand exactly why this list of things came up, which is so specific about like how much load might be on a line um, and how it might damage your hands. Um, you know, transferring from boat to boat using a life raft is a, a very, very good way to do things. But if you do end up in a situation where the life raft gets stuck uh, tied to both boats, or there's a lot of speed differential between the two boats, you can end up like ripping the life raft apart or certainly ripping the painters off it. So very wisely there, they decided, or Alex decided to cut himself free of the boat. And that gave um, Mike Golding more time to sort of circle and get himself into position and then find the right way to come alongside the raft, which looks like it was very, very good. So um, going back down the list here that we were uh, looking at earlier, you know, hauling the raft around to the, the, the leeward side or close to the transom, absolutely. When the rescue boat is very close, load your gear into the raft, test the hand. See, you're all a lot more interested in this now, aren't we, after that description? Okay, what else? Tell me what else, Chris. What else did Alex say? Uh, test the handheld VHF and make sure your boat is stopped. There's a lot of things reminding us to test VHFs and to make sure VHFs are fully charged. So I think we can probably imagine that um, they did have a problem in that uh, area. But better to know, right? And then to be able to uh, avoid it yourself. Uh, let's go down here. Only board the raft when the rescue boat is giving you is okay. Clip yourself to the raft. Absolutely. Pass a line between yourself and the rescue boat. If you can, uh, if not, cut yourself free and drift so he can maneuver around you. Now, importantly in this, uh, Mike's detail there was that the line thrower did not work. So on these um, round the world solo boats, um, when you go to sea, there is all sorts of extra bits of equipment that the race organizers ask you to have. And one of them is a line thrower or a um, projectile rope launcher, I think is the other thing you can call it. Basically, it's kind of like a, a triggered gun-ish type thing, which has a big, well, the one I had is a big kind of yellow can that looked like a giant Pringles can uh, with the same kind of plastic lid on the end of it. And inside there is loads of polypropylene line coiled down hundreds of feet of it. And then some kind of launching charge, a bit like a flare with a, a weight ahead of it. So you pull the trigger, obviously you take all the safeties off, point it away from the boat towards the thing you want to send a line to. And when you pull the trigger, it just 
sends a line hundreds and hundreds of feet. That is a really good piece of equipment to have. I actually did a bit of a, a search here on the computer um, when I started to realize that uh, Mike had mentioned this in his uh, in his log here, and um, I don't know, I can't find them online. I don't know. Does anybody know where you can buy those things? They're uh, they're they're called either um, line line throwers or projectile uh, rope launchers, something like that. But I couldn't find one. I found something on Alibaba that's like fifteen hundred dollars, and uh, I, I'm not trusting that. Let's put it that way. And I saw another one that was four and a half thousand dollars. So I'm not quite sure exactly where the price point is. It's kind of like a throw very long throw line and a flare mixed together so i can't see that it's much more expensive than those two but a great piece of equipment to have had that worked in the situation that uh, mike was describing there it would have made the transfer of that line so 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 much easier but um let's continue down the uh, the list here um pass the line between yourself and the rescue boat if you can if not cut yourself free okay we got that we know why i did that have an open vhf communication at all times yet yeah, because they were and they had that before they even got to each other they were they were actually working out the nav to find each other as they were going along luckily we live in a time where this is even possible right if you have to drift uh, if you have to drift off attach the longest line between the raft and your boat and have a knife ready to cut the line to the raft if required be careful not to cut yourself or the raft is that how his hand got hurt if the life raft is adrift the rescue boat may come alongside or come around you with a trailing line with a horseshoe on the end or another device to enable you to pick up the line so like a life sling right that's a really good way of having one of those things come into use Let's, we won't get off into man overboard gear but there's uh, you know find as many ways to use the bits of equipment as you could if someone's in a life raft you can go around them with your life sling behind. They can use that as an initial point of contact and then transfer a line to them, a bit stronger line to them that they can tie off with. Uh, try to tie the line around the raft or the... Saying, try to tie the line around the raft or to the raft. Okay, I see. Around the raft or to the raft. Hmm, okay. Take care of your hands for rope burns. Oh, that's how he hurt his hand. The loads will be bigger and that you might be ready for. Last couple, if the operation does not succeed, keep trying and stay in your raft. Well, now we know why they put that in because uh, that's exactly what it takes and that's exactly my experience of um, these kind of things. You always think it's going to go one way. It ends up being some, some unexpected variation and it's just your ability to think on the fly that keeps it safe. And uh, last uh, bullet point here, the person rescuing should make all the calls as responsibilities on his shoulders and realistically the person that's in the water has only got limited viewpoint from where they are in the water and they don't know what's going on with the vessel they just go look after themselves and the raft the other person's got to look after the what the boat's actually doing plus they may well be very tired they may be very hungry they may have had no sleep so yeah the person doing the rescuing should be the one that's um had the sleep and it was brilliant to listen in that account from uh, mike and alex's uh, rescue that uh, they took time to do that, to, to sleep, right? Sleep is a weapon. That's how you, the best rested army wins the battle, right? So getting that in really very important. So yeah, well, that kind of brings us to the end of that. I thought there might be something interesting in there for you, abandoning your yacht and then um, Hugo Boss floating on off around the world uh, on her own. Well, I guess that she came aground a, a there probably only months after the, uh, the the time that Alex got off, but uh, took a long time for her to be found. So uh, Yachting World, having that, and Elaine Bunting, uh, that first part of the article, and then the description from Mike, Gold Mike Golding's own account of, of the uh, rescue. So 
Good. I hope that was of interest to you. Um, we've got uh, lots going on over on Patreon at the moment. I've been really getting into that. They've got a whole extra set of books that I'm reading for them on Patreon, as well as the stuff over on the Mariner's Library. So enjoy that. We've got another YouTube video coming out tonight. This one is me on my way still to Iceland, but I'm just crossing vessels and kind of talking about um, how to position the boat and looking at the boats that are going past. Quite a gentle one, just kind of a story of what's happening, but check that out, uh, the Mariner YouTube channel. If you are in there, if you could put a like and a subscribe, the YouTube algorithm is a simple mathematical process where it collects data from the people it shows the video to. And if you don't like it, you don't subscribe, you don't comment, it concludes, oh, you don't like this stuff. So remember to do that really helps out the channel. But that's all I've got for you today. I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.